everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove will be back tomorrow. For now, I'm going to be talking to Charles Bohm. Charles has written about soccer for pretty much every place that pays people to write about soccer, and he's with me today to talk about uh, Burhalter's latest roster. Uh, we go deep on DC United's past, a little bit about their present, and more about their future. Uh, Charles has obviously covered DC United for a good long while, so he's got a lot of expertise there. We get into the financial state of the league and a whole lot more. If you don't know Charles, I promise you he's terrific. And if you do know Charles, then you already know he's terrific, so there's not much else for me to say, aside from over to me talking to Charles Bohm. With me now on the line, making his Total Soccer Show debut, I believe, is a freelance writer, editor based in D.C. Uh, his work has appeared on the High Press, uh, on High Press Soccer, MLS Soccer, USSoccerPlayers.com, Pro Soccer USA, many, many, many sites. It's Mr. Charles Bohm. Charles, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is a pleasure to be here, Taylor, and I think... I could be wrong, but I think I've been on before, but it might well have been like half a decade ago because wow. that's how long we've all been doing this damn thing. Wow. So was it, would that have been with Daryl or with a group of people? I feel like I phoned in to both of you guys. Oh, wow. All to, right. To talk to both of you guys. But it could, uh, honestly, like it, it's, it's, we're talking about sands of time, vague, misty recollections. I could be wrong. So I, I think, I, do I, do you guys have friends of the pod? I feel like I deserve friends of the pod test. At least. I mean, I, 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 I think they come out to your shows and stuff at now when I can. I mean, well, let's, let's, let's go there for a moment. Cause that is definitely true. We did the live show at Audi field. Charles was just there. Charles was just there hanging out, supporting the, supporting the, uh, the team. And then, uh, I don't know if you would love this on record, but I'm going to go ahead and put it on record. Charles is also the one who like, when we were at all-star was like, so are we going out guys or, or what, what's going on here? Like Charles keeps that night going in a very, very positive way. And for that, I'm very thankful. So thank you for that, Charles. Networking activities are very important in this industry. <laughs> there it is. You see, you're you're actually like that's totally true, and not something like like a little view behind the curtain for people is that like Daryl and I never knew that like until we went to the like the convention in Philly, the coaches convention in Philly when they were doing the uh, the elections and the candidates were doing their speeches. We never did any events, and it is totally true that going to events you meet the people that you read day in and day out, and you'll you meet people that are like involved in the soccer community, and it really does help. So yeah, if you can go and have drinks with Charles. I strongly suggest you do so. I guess you can't do that very well, but other people should have drinks with Charles, and Charles is right that uh, networking is very important. But uh, I wanted to talk to Charles about a variety of topics today. Um, if you're a stick-to-sports person, we may cover some ground that you uh, don't love, uh, but I'm fine with that. Uh, and I'm going to start with something that people may not love, may find particularly divisive. Charles, you have Giassi Zardes in your starting 11 for the USA-Mexico game, and I'd like you to defend yourself. Hey, 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 hey. Now, the tweet was very clear, Taylor. <laughs> I, I worded it I worded it I worded it very clearly and carefully in order to head off this type of bogus questioning. <laughs> I, know. I will not have this. <laughs> I will not allow you I will not allow you to take the conversation down this down this cul de sac. <laughs> For what it's worth, Daryl and I also had Giassi Zardes in the starting 11 against Mexico. Um, but I did want to ask you more generally about like things you're most excited to see from this roster in these upcoming friendlies. No, but I'll tell you what, you, I know you've broached this subject in jest, but this is a great topic that I want to get. I want to get this out there. Um, because, because again, I have these moments, I turned 40 not too long ago and I realize I've been writing about the game a long time and I've been watching and like sort of living in American soccer culture for even longer. And I want to tell all the young people, you know, cause the, the sport is the demographics of the sport tend to trend so young and have, there's so many new fans all the time. 
collective memory is sometimes an issue. As I've been following the United States men's national team since approximately the 94 World Cup, possibly before that, I feel like my I feel like I attended my first game in 1993 at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. But I think I have like I think I could be misremembering. But anyway, I've been I've been following this program for way too long, and I and there's always at least 90 plus percent of the time that uh, of that of that quarter century plus, there's always been a player or or a couple players for every coach that a significant segment of fans uh, dread hate, despise, are baffled by their inclusion, don't, you know, just have whatever negative feelings or questioning feelings towards the continued selection of a certain player or set players. There's always that, that person or per- people because national team coaches have so many variables they have to deal with. At least this is my, my best theory as to why this is. National team players um, are, like, you can only change so much um, and if you do, you get into a whole new set of other problems. But, but they have so many, the coaches have so many variables that they they like known quantities. Even if a player is not spectacular or is not elite level at what they do, if they can do it at a, a consistent level and bring a certain skill set or, or output or sort of mentality or contribution and training, they, they, those guys tend to stay on the roster. They stay on the, in the roster projections and pictures and calculations. And so that, then they get called in a lot. And that's the case for Jesse Zardes. Um, it was Alexi Lawless. I have to say, no disrespect, Alexi. Uh, but to the end of his the end of his national team career, he was a trusted veteran, and a lot of player uh, fans were thought it was time for him to go. And he stuck around because he was good at certain things, and he brought certain things to the table. Frankie Hadick was another one. Jess Agus was another one. Yep. Um, in more recent times, we had uh, you know players. People can probably think of Bob Bradley type players like that. Uh, and I think that's important to remember when you're groaning about feeling that Jesse Zardes is not national team level but seeing him in roster after roster and seeing him as, I think he has the second most caps uh, or third most somewhere in there of the group that's been called this week. And that's, it's not, it's not pure nepotism or favoritism or anything like that. There's reasons for that. And there's a history of that. You're totally right. And it's a thing that like I've thought about in like pieces, but never put together to realize that it is a kind of consistent thing, regardless of the manager. Cause even with Klinsman, I remember being frustrated by like, why are we still calling it a Roscoe? I don't understand why this keeps happening. He seems like he's proved that he can't do it. And yet he continues to be called in. And you're absolutely right that it's easy to forget that when the new manager comes to town. It does feel like Michael Bradley has transcended a series of managers in, in being that player for a lot of people. And I'm not inter- entirely sure why that's the case but i think you're you're dead on with jesse zardes and to some extent maybe omar gonzalez although he's not uh in this roster so does that mean then that like you do you try to see what it is that greg berhalter sees in jesse zardes is that a part of watching him when he plays for you or is it just sort of a recognition that that's probably who he is and that's probably why he's here no absolutely i i i think you have to i, I try to take that lens to, to uh, approach games of that lens because um, we're, we're all, we all have our, most of us at least have our opinions about the game and what we'd like to see or what we wish was happening or what we would do if we were the coach. But at the end of the day, Greg Berhalter is the coach or, you know, whoever's the coach at a given time for any team, you know, that, that I'm watching, um, I, it, it, there's, you can, there's limits to it, but it's good to, to try and put yourself in that coach's head as much as possible. And then things make a little more sense. I think, even if it's not the way you would do it. Uh, and and the the lineup I was referring to, uh, where you kind of gave your rough idea for starting eleven, like that was uh, I think that was just sort of like what you expected to see based on past performance. I don't want to mischaracterize, but I am wondering if that lineup has changed at all in the last twenty four hours, or is it more or less the same? 
Good question. Um, let, me go, let me scroll back to it. So I think um, it was an, a very early stab based on what we know coming mm-hmm. into this camp. But there is always camp is camp. Like these guys are going to get some time together. They're going to be um, they're, they're arriving at camp with, with certain levels of form and mentality. And uh, there's there's so much human element in here. And players do have the opportunity to, to turn a coach's head and impress in training. Um, or, or, you know, there's just so many calculations to it. So, uh, so yes, I think, um, if I can make sure I'm, I'm referring to, to the, uh, the 11 that I, mm-hmm. that I laid out, I, 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 I'm expecting there will be changes to that group, um, because there's players that are going to come in, um, in form, you know, there's players that are going to be, so here's what I had. Um, I had Stefan Reem, Brooks, Long, Cannon, Trap, McKinney, Boyd, Pulisic, Morris, Zardes. Um, so that was coming in with the recollection of where Pulisic played in, uh, in kind of a central playmaking role in the last camp, if I'm remembering. And again, I don't have, I don't have the data in mm-hmm. front of me on the, the previous window, but, but it sounds as though people have sort of surmised from the, um, from the list of players putting Christian Pulisic in as a forward. There's this, there's this sort of conventional wisdom forming that that means he's going to be in a wide attacking role in this window. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, Greg, Greg Berhalter, I should kind of laughed yeah. um, at, at, a, at another reporter's phrasing of, um, of the number 10 experiment uh, in the conference call yesterday. Um, he, and he said he doesn't care about it. Was, uh, is that, was that the question you asked? And I guess you asked a question about McKinney, but somebody else, um, yeah. Tom Boger asked about, about Pulisic. And, and you can tell that, that Berhalter has, he, he's a methodical guy. So he's probably got a couple of different scenarios in his head that he's already plotting out for how he sees training and games and whatnot going. And, and, and he'll, he'll react uh, dynamically in the moment. Uh, you know, Morris is to me is not a, a locked on starter by any means. He's coming in in a decent run of form and he, he's shown an ability to kind of do a job in that wide uh, role in a, in a band of three and a four, two, three, one. But, uh, but there's plenty of players in this, uh, in this, on this list that could, that could move ahead of him. I think same thing goes for Will Trapp. Uh, that's another player that um, polarizes opinion right now. He's sort of the next Michael Bradley, I guess uh, very advanced skill set in certain facets of a number six's job and in other areas, he has real questions that have dogged him at international level. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe we'll see someone else try it out there. So it's uh, that, that's the fun part of it. Fans shouldn't assume that, that, that this coach is set in his ways. Cause I think he is a, um, He's a data-oriented and sort of intellectually curious coach by nature. And then how much uh, turnover do you think there will be between one game and the next? Uh, with Major League Soccer continuing on, there's the playoffs coming up, so teams are going to be worried about that. Do you think we will see uh, at least a couple players after the Mexico game maybe go back to their clubs? And not necessarily new players come in, but more so just kind of players return so that their uh, MLS teams aren't too frustrated. Yeah, I mean, we, we, the 26 is a big group, right? For for a relatively tight window, so I think I think there's a reason for that. Um, and and fans have to remember that they're, you, you, you're not necessarily going to get that information ahead of time as you're as we're in the phase we're in right now, evaluating the roster. Uh, I, I would think so. That would make a lot of sense um, because you've already seen this sort of ripple of um, uh, of whether it's valid complaints or what about ism sort of about players that get called and players that don't and where team their teams are in the MLS table, for example, and that sort of thing. So, um, and there's always a, a, a very delicate and, and I think uh, calculated process with players overseas too. These are not competitive games. I would think that 
Veralter is happily making some concessions in this window because he knows he's got competitive matches in the next two windows. So those are the ones where you really, even though it's they're against, in, you know, generally sort of a, a notch or two down in terms of the level of the opposition that the games count, they, they go into FIFA rankings, like the CONCACAF Nations League. So, uh, so I think we'll see, we'll see a little bit of flux there. And and for you personally, like, how do you watch these types of friendlies against stronger opposition? Do you care about the result, or is it much more like, okay, who's playing that number ten spot, or what's this guy doing? Is it more sort of like little experiments on the field that catch your attention, or are you watching the game just kind of as a whole, wanting to see the result? Probably all the above. I mean, you, you know, games like this can go a long way if you can get a result. If you can, if you can, uh, obviously, nobody wants to to lose to a rival like Mexico. Um, the fact that these games are at home counts for something, you know, there's a little, there's, there should be, um, some motivation there. I mean, results are always part of the process, but I'm, I'm, I think the, the key here is that you have quality opposition that's going to test you. That's going to, um, puncture some of your assumptions, probably, um, force players to adapt, force players to, to lift their game, um, you know, against probably higher, higher level of, of opposition overall. Um, I think these are both, you know, these teams are both better than the United States, at least on paper. So there's, uh, there should be, um, there should be some sense of competitiveness, um, of a, of a plan being in place and a plan being executed. Right. I mean, that's, again, we talked about variables earlier. Uh, to me, that's the start. We hear all about Bear Halter's, um, philosophies and his, and his concepts and this advanced curriculum that he's in, uh, implementing over a long term and all that sort of thing. Well, okay. So this is a, you're almost a year in now. Um, these are games that, don't count, you know, but they, they are they are big big showcases and against good opposition. More still to come from my conversation with Charles Bohm, but first I wanted to let our listeners know that today's show is brought to you in part by our friends over at Fubo TV. Fubo is the only soccer focused TV streaming service. They've got so so many games for you to watch. Uh, I have really loved having Fubo, especially for the weekend reviews, because you can kind of flip around really easily. All the soccer channels are right there, or at least most of the soccer channels are right there, and you're able to basically watch them, and then when they get bored, you can just move on to the next one, but the key feature for us has been that you can DVR. They've got the cloud DVR, which is incredibly useful, up to 500 hours of cloud storage, so if you're not going to be able to watch the games, or you know, say that you might need to watch a couple of them Sunday night before you talk about them on Monday, you can record them, and then they're right there, nice and easy, but you don't have to install a whole bunch of equipment or have people come out and run lines. Nope, just sign up, and you're good to go. And if you forget to hit record and do not DVR uh, something, then the good news there is that they've got 70 two-hour replays of all kinds of soccer content. So essentially, if something airs and it was on Fubo, you can watch it for up to three days after it aired. And I'm assuming that will extend to the Cooligans. Our friends, the Cooligans, uh, will be launching a Fubo show, I think, sometime in the very near future, which we're very excited to watch and see how it goes. And if they have a live audience, be there and heckle them. That's my goal. Um, so you'll be able to find that there as well. So you can go to FuboTV.com slash TSS. One more time, that's F-U-B-O-T-V.com slash TSS. Uh, and you can get 10% off uh, your first two months of Fubo. Uh, that, again, gives you 4K TV, 500 hours of cloud storage, 72-hour replays on all kinds of content, and a 10% discount by going to FuboTV.com slash TSS. Thank you very much to Fubo for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to me talking to Charles. See, that's why I was excited to have Charles on the show. We need that veteran perspective, and it is a veteran perspective from, I think, 1993, you said, was your first game. Uh, when did you first... Something like that. <laughs> I see, that's good. And that was, that was in Texas, though. What was your, what, when did you first start covering DC? So 
I moved to to DC in November 2003, and then I uh, entered the job market. Um, year or so later. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I was just, you know, when you're applying for jobs, um, I'd done the Peace Corps. Um, so I'd lived abroad and I was, I was relocated here and, and I was, um, trying to figure out where I was going to go and what I was going to do. And I, um, was applying to a range of different sort of communication oriented jobs. And I happened to apply for a, a job posting at, uh, old schoolers may remember that before ESPN FC, there was ESPN soccer net. Yep. Um, was their, their, their soccer hub. And there was a posting on there, like an ad in one of the, you know, sort of like page ads for that's the, the uh, hiring for or seeking sort of like, I think you're seeking journalists or writers in MLS markets, like for beat, a beat writing position, basically. And so I applied for it and I'll, I'll, I'll spare your, your listeners a whole story, but I just applied for it kind of on a lark at the same time I was trying to get a full-time job. And it just so happened that I got, um, I got a full-time job at a communications and public relations firm on K Street in D.C. at the same time that I got called back for that gig, and it was a side gig kind of. Um, and I would typically go and do – I was covering D.C. United for what was then MLSnet.com before uh, w- what we now know as MLS Soccer. And I uh, uh, I would go out to, like, D.C. United trainings on my lunch break once or twice a week, cover the games. Uh, it's very different landscape, media landscape back then, I can assure you. But uh, it was a side hustle and a, and something enjoyable to do. And then eventually, gosh, seven or eight years later, uh, it ended up being something I could shift towards full time. And and obviously, that coverage includes uh, going to RFK. Do you have any particular RFK-ish memories of RFK? Oh, too many, too many. <laughs> Uh, lots of good ones. There's so many. I mean, I, I, there's a book probably, but um, I hope I do think I don't. I try not to flog uh, my work too much in these kind of appearances. But um, my friend Pablo Maurer and I did a, a really fun um, uh, long form piece about RFK at, at, around the time of the last game there, the last call at RFK um, week in the at the end of the MLS season in 2017, uh, and had a blast just talking to people that have uh, worked there a long time and played there over the years and. Uh, it's, um, there's, there's so many and they're, they're, I generally have positive feelings, um, more so than negative ones. Um, maybe, maybe it was easier to work there than to to pay money to go be a fan there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but, um, probably the the RFK story I end up telling the most is one of my favorites, uh, of just kind of set the vibe for people is that the upper deck, right. Um, fans will remember like the upper deck is not used much for soccer. Um, and it's sort of this big swooping, Mm -hmm you know, high area that kind of looms above the, the pitch and everything. And uh, it, it's rarely used since the, since the NFL team left. And so occasionally there would be stories about things that would be found in the upper deck on a rare occasion when it would get, uh, when it would get used. And um, my favorite is occasionally like stadium staff will find um, dead fish uh, amongst what? the seats of the upper deck. And it took a, um, it took sort of like a, a, a multi-level, snooping process to figure out that what's happening is that RFK is right next to the Anacostia River natural areas there and and birds of prey uh, are known to catch fish uh, in the river nearby and they carry them up there and either drop them or don't whatever happens something gets interrupted so these fish are getting dropped by large birds into the upper deck and found days months weeks later um, by by stadium staff and and have to sort of solve that uh, bizarre tableau i like that i mean between that and the family of raccoons i like that rfk has become like a wildlife sanctuary of sorts at least there's that that's a nice uh, step for them in the right direction i guess 
it really is an urban an urban wildlife um, habitat, um, and it's and and people say the family. I mean, there's probably multiple families, and and we were I was out at DC training on Tuesday. They still train at the auxiliary fields adjacent to RFK, and the you know the team's locker rooms are in RFK. Their day to day environment um, doesn't change until next year when the new training complex out in the burbs opens up. But they um, we're all wondering, like the next step probably is is demolition. It's not imminent; it could be years to come. I mean, the, the final plan for that site isn't known, but at some point that building will either be gutted or imploded, and there will uh, we're, we're wondering what the wildlife exodus will be like. I mean, it could really destabilize the, the local neighborhood uh, yep. environment. Yep, I imagine that will happen. But I also feel like that's a perfect metaphor for DC United as they currently exist, that they're like stuck between like RFK and the kind of like past and and Audi Field and the present. Like for you, like, do you miss some of that RFK vibe? I know Bruce Arena, for example, came out. He was fairly critical of Audi Field, talked about the lack of connections to the teams of the past. They're working to deal with that now, from what I understand. But, like, why do you think that maybe wasn't necessarily there to begin with? Because it feels like there sort of has been this transition from RFK and Banners and Echeverry and Moreno and all that to a more, for lack of a better term, like kind of sterilized Audi field, at least in its present incarnation. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a period of transition. And it didn't, you know, you'd like to think uh, that, you know, we tend to think maybe that there's a... Um, uh, once the new stadium opens, sort of there's a bow on everything and everything moves on and it's a proud new era and you've turned the page and it's not though. It's, it, you know, this uh, Audi field has been a really difficult, you know, urban sports stadium project that's, that's had incredible cost overruns and has had to, uh, it's sort of still in, in development, right? They're, they're still figuring out, you know, they had to replace the pitch this year. They're still figuring out how that's going to work. There's going to be an XFL team in there next year. No one's sure how that cohabitation is going to go, right? There's still buildings, literally buildings being developed within the shadow of Audi Field. So that neighborhood is in flux. The team is in flux. And, and, and a club is also, more than anything, right, is the, the, tr- the stories and the institutional memory of the people that work there and, and are around the community that you hope you hopefully have a, have develop around a, a club. Right. And um, a lot of that has been disrupted or even um, stunted because, uh, you know, they're losing money to RFK. Everyone knows that. And, and there was inevitably it dragged on so long. There was a, there was a human cost to that, that ownership changed. Um, um, and the, you know, the, the, before the, the, the current, there was an ownership change, basically a, a management change recently um, but before that, when Eric Tohir took um, managing control of the club, they had to—they felt they had to slash costs as much as they could. And and so the staff at, at DC United, over the years, dating back uh, a decade or so now, has been slashed to the bone repeatedly. And it's a, and it affects all areas of the club, right? You can only do so much with a with with so much human power and human capital. And um, inevitably, I think some of the institutional memory got lost. There, there were people that had been day one since 1995 employees who were lost or who had, who were, who were cut loose or, um, uh, you know, let go over the past decade. And, and so that sense of tradition has definitely changed. Now the people in charge now don't want, they, they value it. They know that that's the, one of the most valuable commodities that, that that club has and that it matters, but it's just hard when you have a fan base, a generational shift in your fan base, you have, turnover in your, uh, in, in your front office and, and, you know, all those sorts of things uh, inevitably affect um, how, how the club looks at the past and the future. So, um, so it's a tough spot. I have a lot of empathy for them. They take a lot of stick um, and it's a lot of it is not, 
it's sins of omission rather than sins of, you know, kind of malevolence. So um, I think that there, there's a lot that needs to be done or that could be done better, but there, it does at least seem to be a, a commitment to, to improvement. The question for me always comes back to, you know, resources. Um, they're making more money now, but they've also, they're also spending more money. And there's a lot of, there appears to me to be a, a high amount of leverage in terms of the financial assets of DC United. So it's, they can only open the wallet so fast so quickly uh and in such a to such an extent and uh and that kind of is a tba at the moment to see kind of what how that all takes shape especially after wayne rooney goes home in the winter well yeah let's let's talk about that for a second because that's that's one of the like the things that i was most excited to discuss with you because i am i say it on the show frequently like a nominal dc fan and i say that because like i don't come up to every single game and i certainly wasn't there in the stands when they were having like the worst season ever but i do have like an interest i do care about the team it's the first american team that i cheered for in 1996 Uh, but like and it has felt since like the days of rfk clearly not being good enough anymore that the team were always sort of moving towards okay we're gonna get a new stadium and then we're going to be a sort of, for lack of a better term, like modern Major League Soccer team. And now they have that. And then suddenly they go on that run last year, obviously with most of the games being at home. And it kind of felt like, oh, okay, like that moment has arrived. They've moved to that next level with Rooney and Acosta. And now there's this season and the downturn. And I find myself sort of uncertain of where they are as an organization because it felt like Rooney's going to be there for a while. Acosta's going to be there for as long as they can hold on to him. They've got this core squad. Olsen's there and it felt like it was moving in the right direction. And now this season, even though they're still in the playoffs, it feels like maybe that's not necessarily the case. And I can't tell if that's me trying to be objective and see things as they are or my sort of fan bias leaning into the way I'm seeing things. So I guess I'm asking you to be the therapist for me, if you don't mind, Charles. <laughs> uh, a good way of approaching – I found it useful um, to approach DC United's current situation. One, starting by looking at Wayne Rooney, Rooney has turned out to be – kind of an old school DP sort of a Beckham style DP where, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's helped them on the field immensely. He's helped them off the field. He's, um, he's made them relevant in the market in a way that, that few other players could, and that you know, there's not many people on earth that can do that them by themselves single-handedly. Um, so he's, he's really patched up a lot of, uh, areas of need for the club. Um, and the, and it, it, it's so many things. It's the, it's his name, his reputation, his mentality, um, and his, even the contract, right? Like the contract has proved to be a win-win. I mean, they, they spent more on him and invested more in him than anyone else in history by, in the club's history by a long ways, but it's, it, this contract was very intelligently built to have be very incentive heavy. So he's been up until his derby move, at least, um, he's been really committed, really eager to be on the field. Um, really motivated, and I'm not saying that that's strictly because of the financial incentives of the contract. And he's a pro in general. He's a he's a gamer. He's he's a guy who wants to be involved and wants to do his best. Um, but it, but he also has an incentive to do that financially, and so um, so that all worked out really well. And he he single handedly fixed so many areas, or at least remedy, you know, mediated them. And um, when he goes away, I bet there's not many players out there um, that can do all that like he did especially not to the tune of what was, I think, a total financial commitment of something like 13, between 13 and $15 million, if I remember correctly, over, over a period of three and a half years. Like, you know, I don't know who else can do that. I mean, you could say that Orlando has the type of player like that in Nani, but it's not really the same, you know? Um, I mean, most of the jerseys you see around Audi Field and, uh, and DC United jerseys and around town are Rooney jerseys. And uh, there's a lot of Man U Rooney jerseys at Audi Field every mm-hmm. week. So, um, so I think that the question is going to be, 
um, do you, there, there will be some money from Rooney's unfulfilled deal that, you know, that comes, becomes available to the club this winter, but do you, do you go out and try and find another whale like that? Or do you, do you spread that money around and try and do something more like maybe what, uh, you know, uh, Red Bulls or, uh, Philly or a team like that does with those resources. And from what you understand, like, do you expect Rooney to speak positively of his time in D.C. and in Major League Soccer? Like, do you think he goes back to England as sort of an ambassador for the league and for the team? Or like, I know there were some reports that maybe like uh, Colleen Rooney, his wife, wasn't so happy living in D.C. Do you think it's more of a like, yeah, we were there and now we're happy to be back in England? Yeah, that 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 remains to be seen, and there I, I do suspect he, he's expressed his frustration with the refereeing, with the travel mm-hmm. aspects, with um, uh, uh, most recently the lack of a chartered flight um, by DC United back from Vancouver, which is the longest first trip of the year for for many MLS teams, and one that um, ended up being a, a full day of travel for United coming home. Um, but here's the thing: it's hard to tell where certain personal factors and, and, and sort of into, you know, institutional or systemic factors begin because um, Wayne Rooney and his wife are, are, if I remember their childhood sweethearts, mm-hmm. they, this is their first time living outside of not just England, but the, the Northwest of England. Forgive, forgive me if I'm messing up details here, but no, I think you're um, right. So, so, you know, there's, a, there's been a, a longstanding issue with English footballing exports, right? They, they don't often leave the country because they don't have to. And sometimes they don't settle or their families don't settle. Um, the, the club, I think, did everything they could to, to ease the transition to the United States. I mean, they, I think they, they helped, certainly helped them find a house. I think the house is part of the, in, in Bethesda. They live in, in the Maryland suburbs. I think the house is included in the, in the contract. He's got a handler of one of their top staffers, Roy Mileta, who who is sort of the Rooney handler who drives them everywhere and helps them with stuff. And I, I don't think that there's much that DC United – could have done other than you know just coming up against the hard limitations of their financial picture right like dc united as as my understanding is not chartering any flights this year i think you're limited to two round trips Mm -hmm. charters a a year during league play if i remember right again forgive me if i'm if i'm missing up the details but they're they're not doing that they're not using the charter option at all because it's just it, it United is in that sort of their financial position you know bigger clubs richer clubs like atlanta and and the la teams can can sign those checks without thinking twice about it. And DC has to think twice about it. That's just their financial reality. And they're certainly not alone. That's probably closer to the MLS norm uh, than the rich teams. Uh, so I think, I think Rooney will probably have some, some at least at the very least slide remarks about the quality of officiating and <clears throat> some of the organizational, you know, disciplinary stuff uh, on a league wide basis. But I don't think he's had a bad experience in DC um, specifically. Hey folks, Taylor jumping in one more time to let you know that today's show is also brought to you in part by our friends over at Policy Genius. September is National Life Insurance Awareness Month. Most people aren't even aware of that fact. I was not. Um, most people aren't even aware that they need life insurance at all. That's why 40% of Americans don't have it. Now, Charles and I have been talking about life in RFK Stadium. We talk about that on the show today. Um, and if you've ever been to RFK or you went there during the DC United years, you'll know that uh, there was always a chance that maybe there'd be some falling debris. Maybe there's like an underwater tunnel that's flooded. Uh, lots of different obstacles. Uh, there could be, uh, I guess, aerial predators is what we learned. There could also be some raccoons in there. You never know. So maybe you do need that life insurance. Maybe that's what RFK should have taught us is that you should always have life insurance just in case uh, Magneto comes in and destroys the stadium. You want to make sure you're covered. I'm assuming Policy Genius will have coverage for that because they make it really easy to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. 
Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape, and they make it very easy. So you don't have to wait for, say, 20 years the way DC United did to get their stadium. Policy Genius will have you waiting significantly less time than that. I shouldn't even compare them because, as I said before, in minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Uh, if you need life insurance but you just haven't gotten around to it, National Life Insurance Awareness Month is as good a time as any to get started. So go to policygenius.com, get quotes, and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius is the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Thank you very much to Policy Genius for sponsoring today's show. Now back one more time to me and Charles. I, I've got a, a couple of questions for you, uh, but I know you've got a lot going on. Do you have time for a few more questions or uh, would it be better to sure, wrap up sure, now? Sure, go ahead. All right. Well, so you go mentioned ahead. that there's a chance that like they'll have some money to spend. They can spread it around a bit. Um, if they do that with Rooney gone, do you think they trust Ben Olsen to oversee that project and, and to stick around next season? Uh, is it wholly dependent on how this season plays out? Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, the, there's and there's a lot of <clears throat> variables in this situation because you have um, you have Jason Levian, who is the um, managing partner, I believe is his title. He's been sort of the he was kind of the <clears throat> um, he was Sohir's right hand man um, and made that brought in that ownership group and made that ownership change happen. He is the guy who's been the sort of the the Mister Fix It, get stuff done, get the stadium done. He famously. Um, talked about, you know, we see a path to a stadium and, and uh, you know, it's the jungle, but I have a machete or something like that, like talking about the, the challenges of D.C. United getting their own stadium. So Levian is the, is the guy who gets the most uh, responsibility and has the most credit for, for United getting to this point. Um, and he has also presided over the recent um, shift of uh, or the recent addition of uh, Kaplan, Steve Kaplan and his group, the Swansea group, uh, American-led mm-hmm. group of investors, um, if and Levian has sort of because of his connections to both owners, the club's primary investment uh, investors has, has the, the majority of the investors changed without Levian. You know, Levian's been he's still in sort of in the same position. So the question becomes: if change is, is seen, who decides that a change needs to be made? Is it um, Dave Casper, the the general manager? Departing, you know, parting ways with Ben Olsen, or is it Casper and Olsen being seen as in need of a package deal that that will stay or go? And does Jason Levian make that decision, or does Steve Kaplan, who appears to be increasingly interested in taking a more active role, does he make decisions there, or does he kind of say in a more background role? Um, and then what happens? There's that, that doesn't. There's not a clear and obvious successor from within to me. Uh, Nolan Sheldon is one of his assistants who kind of runs training sessions, who was promoted from academy director a couple years ago. And he's, I think, one of the brightest young coaching minds in the league. Um, but I, I suspect that they'd want to give him that, that he wouldn't necessarily be a, a permanent co- head coaching placement for Olsen. So then, you know, do you stand up, do you wait the off season and maybe have a long process or are they setting something up kind of secretly uh, coming up with a new technical staff like there's a lot to kind of contemplate there um, i think olsen will get the rest of this year but then with so much change being likely offing with um Luciano acosta probably leaving with wayne rooney leaving that could make it a make an owner decide that it's a logical time to to change the staff too 
So this is also definitely my ignorance showing here because like I assume that everyone in Major League Soccer that isn't like attending the games or writing about it uh, is incredibly rich. Um, and you said DC might be closer to maybe like the norm in terms of their spending habits. Why is that the case? Because like I, maybe in my mind it's just like the expansion fees are coloring the way I see things, but I just sort of assume that like the owners almost have like the unlimited faucet and they can turn it on or off if they choose to. And I've just kind of always operated the assumption that DC's ownership for whatever reason chose not to similar to a few other organizations. And maybe that's just me. Like, again, like having that sort of like, Oh, they, they make a bunch of money expansion fees. I know MLS loses a little bit, but I'm sure they've all got money to spend. So why is that the case? Do you think that like there is less money to go around than it might seem there should be? Well, there's a pretty significant, uh, spectrum, a pretty broad spectrum of ownership, wealth, and commitment levels. And when I say commitment, that's not to, that's talking about their financial commitment, their, their willingness to spend money or lose money um, uh, on their team, whether that's simply because they don't care about profit and loss or they're making an investment towards the future or sitting on an investment, what have you. So there's a big range. And there's, uh, I think right now, at least Houston is generally proceeding probably uh, at the the maybe the far end in terms of modest spending and then Atlanta and LAFC are kind of at the, at the other extreme. What it comes down to is that they're all spending, they're all dumping money into uh, a communal pot every year that gets distributed via the sort of socialist uh, elements of, of single entity, right? Where um, they're all putting in money that they're all sharing via allocation money, targeted allocation money, general allocation money, um, all the different sort of, league-oriented or league-centralized spending mechanisms. There's a little bit of collectivism, I think, on homegrown spending as well. Here's a homegrown pot of money, too. And then they're, and then they're uh, sort of painstakingly over the years, we've had these um, additional spending options carved out or in addition. So anytime a player, a team is getting a designated player, um, if they're spending on that player, um, you know, there's certain... I don't want to get into the lost in the weeds here, but typically like a player like Carlos Vela... Um, the league is only fronting a, a very modest amount. The vast majority of that big contract is being paid directly from the club, the, man, the, the ownership of the club or the managing organization of the club itself to the player. And of course, you know, maybe it legally goes through MLS's uh, coffers at some point. I, I don't honestly don't know what the bank transfers look like, but they're choosing to spend money that other teams don't have to spend. Right. So, mm-hmm. so DC United in the skint years at RFK were, were always, minimizing to the greatest extent the amount of ownership spending they were using league money they were they got very good at taking up you know cast offs via trades and waivers and and that sort of thing and and then also even like a a, a, a signing a transfer acquisition like for example ola kamara who they brought back to mls from china um uh, in the recent weeks is if i remember correctly now his salary and transfer fee that was paid to his chinese club uh was via tam so when you see when you see an allocation money designation, that means they're spending that collective money. Now, if you see you know what they're spending on Wayne Rooney, the vast majority was, was optional spending. So they deserve you, know, you have to say, okay, that's a level of commitment. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you have to spend that money to be competitive. That usually gives you a little bit of a, a hint as to their commitment levels, the ownership's mentality, right? So um, everybody wants to maximize that collective pool of money because that's where you're sort of spending other people's money in a sense. But then if you really need to write a check and charters are a good example, like if you want to max out the charter allocation that you're you know, limited to by the league and, the, and, the, and all those rules, you're, you're writing that check out of your own pocket. Or in the case of, 
for example, like the Patriots plane, it gets loaned to the revolution um, once or twice a year for their charters. So it's all a question of kind of like where, what your resources are both within the league and then within your bit, your individual ownership group and how you, how you um, marshal those. There's some teams that are kind of seem to have unlimited budgets in terms of that optional spending, that selective spending. And there's others that are very, very restricted in that regard. That was very, uh, very useful, and you did not get in too into the weeds at all. Thank you for that. Uh, my, my last question, or my last kind of series of questions I wanted to ask about, uh, relates to the piece you wrote for High Press Soccer. Uh, back in May, it was uh, titled, MLS and the LGBTQ Community Stuck in the Muddled Middle. Uh, and it kind of went through some of the positives that Major League Soccer has done, some of the things that still need to be done, and some of the areas of concern. Obviously, that was written back in May. I'm wondering with that in mind, like how you feel about the current state, uh, state where basically I think at the time you were arguing, not even arguing, you were just kind of stating that like it used to be sort of easier for Major League Soccer to stay in the middle and not really take a position. Maybe this was Kim McCauley's point in the article and that like now as things have gotten more divisive, it becomes an almost untenable position. It feels like we're sort of even at a more intense point now than we were back then. So I'm wondering, like, is there a thing that you would like to see Major League Soccer do? Is, a, is there a thing you think they will do in order to kind of deal with things as they are or will they just hope that it all blows over? Yeah, I think uh, I think we see that MLS um, is 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 has found itself in a minefield, not unlike what the NFL is dealing with with the with its with Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling uh, at the end in the national anthems, and what the NBA has has encountered with, um, for example, like protests against um, uh, police violence against mm-hmm. the, the African American community. There's there's the our our, our politics. And our culture, cultural milieu or culture wars, however you want to look at it, um, are increasingly um, bleeding beyond boundaries that we once considered pretty hard, hard firewalls, right? In terms of like stick to sports, right? Sports is an escape. We we set aside um, our political or ideological discussions and conflicts in certain sort of safe spaces in other sectors of society, and that's harder than ever. It's it's messier than ever. There, there's no kind of the, the firewalls of old, I think, are changing and, or, or eroding. So so in that regard, I don't view MLS situation as particularly unique. Everybody's trying to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. There's a constant, um, you know, conversation, dialogue, uh, actions, reactions, mistakes, corrections on those mistakes, right? So, um, and again, as I said in the piece, I, I want to recognize, um, and, and I think MLS does deserve recognition for being in my, what I would phrase, in my opinion, as more progressive on the spectrum of professional sports leagues in the United States and sports institutions, uh, MLS is, is, is really well ahead of many of its peers in terms of how it approaches these issues. But inevitably, we, I think we hit, um, we hit the fundamental awkwardness of a corporate uh, series or a set of corporate entities that have profit as the motive and that have um, typically have more conservative, more likely older and wider executives and management and ownership positions um, in a league in which significant demographic, um, a bigger chunk of the of the fan base than any other league in, in North America, is left of center, progressive, um, uh, has a, a significantly different approach to ideological questions, and so this kind of we've got a perfect storm brewing with all these factors that I've reeled off. And there's no 
honestly, there's no perfect roadmap that tells them what to do. And I think they're kind of, we're seeing them kind of um, stagger a bit from, from, from one set of blowback to another because they're trying to make everyone happy. And uh, that's harder than ever, possibly impossible in modern America and, and North America, um, considering that Canada is part of this as well. So it's unfair of me to ask you to design a perfect system in which MLS operates flawlessly? <laughs> uh, you know, if I had those kind of answers, I wouldn't be giving them away for free on the podcast. I'd be, I'd be charging somebody uh, crazy <laughs> consulting fees, right? I mean, you you could and probably should. Uh, so, like the last question on that though, like, do you think is Major League Soccer? Do you think like aware of that issue? As you said, like older, whiter, slightly more conservative. Do you think that that's a thing that they are aware of and would seek to change, or like given? Like based on their past performance, do you think it's more likely that they kind of like try to stay the course and kind of like keep things as they are for as long as they can? I guess what I'm asking is, in your in your opinion, in your experience, is Major League Soccer an entity that is like proven to change or seeks to change, or do you think it holds on a little bit to the kind of operational policies of the past? Uh, I think that the league it, it, they definitely are. This is an information hungry executive mm-hmm. leadership group. I mean, there, there's, they spend a lot of time uh, focus grouping fans and prospective fans in different segments of, of their present and desired future fan base. Uh, they want to know as much as they can. Uh, they want to know what fans think and feel and care about. The question just is, then how do you, once you decide, if you just, even if you get to the point where you decide that a change is necessary, you're, you know, you're turning a tanker ship here. You, you, there's, there's a process that goes into um, discussing and then reaching consensus within at the end of the day, big decisions are made by a board of governors that represent that are, you know, have whatever 27 and growing uh, ownership groups at, at a table at a big, literally a big old conference table in a hotel ballroom, um, cussing and discussing behind closed doors, um, the, the way forward for this league in, in every different sector. And they have, they have management, you know, committees and focus committees and that sort of thing. They're all, they're, they're trying to re- marshal their resources to, to take the best course forward, but that's a process. And you can imagine when you look at the spectrum of, uh, we talked about the spectrum of ownership, wealth and investment levels, and then you have different ages, different uh, mindsets, different regions, different countries. Even now the owner MLS ownership is bigger, uh, more diverse and messier than ever. So I, I can only imagine, you know, that's why Don Garber is paid, well and has been very successful because he's good and he's trusted by these owners at, uh, you know, at, at, for his ability to sort of get consensus, take the temperature and move forward in a way that benefits the majority uh, of the group. And as they move forward, I take solace in the fact that uh, Charles will be there to cover it all and help me understand how to feel because genuinely, like, I, I like my takeaway from this uh, entire conversation uh, is summarized as like, everyone is trying to do the best they can as much as they can. <laughs> it's sort of like Jesse Zardes isn't trying to ruin your U.S. national team fandom. He's having the career he's having. And Don Garber isn't necessarily this like evil entity. Everyone's trying to do their best. So Charles, I appreciate the sort of nuanced and calm approach to uh, to soccer coverage that you, you bring to the table. Uh, it's just one voice among many. And, and uh, again, I, I, I should here probably acknowledge too. Look, I've, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a freelancer and an independent contractor, but one of my biggest clients is the league website that, and that's been the case. I've, I've contributed in some form or fashion to the league website dating back to 2004. 
So, um, you know, for some that probably compromises my perspective on things, but I am, I'm not an employee of the league. You know, it's a, it's a client relationship that I have. And again, I recognize that maybe that, that colors my outlook on things, but I've, I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of these things develop and take shape. And, and it's, you know, I feel like it's my job to try and find, uh, the most, uh, truth uh, and the best balance in all of this going forward. And, um, that's always my, my outlook on it. People can, uh, take it, leave it or, or, or incorporate it into their, their own individual perspective. I mean, we, we often, anytime we say uh, anything positive about the league, uh, we tend to get at least a tweet or two uh, accusing us of being paid shills by Don Garber and Soccer United Marketing. I mean, at least you're actually being paid by, by Major League Soccer. At least there's that. <laughs> well, this is an old joke that um, those of us who've, uh, if you spend any time in the industry at all, you will have that accusation leveled against you. And mm-hmm. um, it certainly doesn't stop um, people within the league from calling or, or within American soccer in general from calling me up and, uh, or, or emailing me and telling me that I'm, uh, uh, I, I hate MLS or I have a, I have an ax to grind or I'm compromised in the other direction and I'm too hard on them or, or unfair or, or too idealistic or too cynical or any number of other uh, things. So yeah, you know, you'll, if you do it for any length of time, you may see a few, um, Slings and arrows in, in uh, from a few different directions, and that's part of the process as well, and and part of the joy of our modern media landscape. Yeah, I, mean, I also think that like like if you're a if you're a solid journalist, isn't the goal to have both sides not necessarily hate you, but not necessarily love you? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's uh, like the like I saw a coach recently say uh, on Twitter somewhere. You know, the two uh, most important words. Um, I, I, or like, like coaches in, in many situations can say are, it depends. So <laughs> it depends, Taylor. I like that. I thought it was going to be no comment. It depends is a better one, but, but Charles, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, listeners, I think when we began this, uh, Charlie had like maybe 15 or 20 minutes and I have greatly exceeded that. So Charles, thank you. <laughs> uh, happy to help out. Always a pleasure to chat.